Welcome to All In, the Sustainable Business Podcast. Three veterans of sustainability, David Grayson, Chris Coulter, and Mark Lee, take you behind the scenes of the most innovative and exciting aspects of business today. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of All In Sustainable Business Podcast. I'm Chris Coulter, and I'm here with my friend and colleague, Mark Lee. Hi, Mark. Hey, Chris. Great to be here. Um, David, our third compatriot, who's usually with us, is enjoying some time off in Southern Europe. So happy to be here with you, and we'll do our best, David, to represent you as well. And, and David will come back in September full of invigoration and he'll be fired up for the busy fall that's happening in sustainability, which we'll get to in a sec. Later today in the program, we have a wonderful interview with Frederica Clarin, who is the head of sustainability for Polestar, the EV company out of Sweden. And uh, you'll enjoy hearing her take on working in a sort of startup gone to an upstart company focusing on sustainable mobility transition. And she's, she's delightful. So that'll, that'll be fun. But first, let's talk, Mark, about all the stuff that's been happening in sustainability. And there's a big thing that happened, the BFD that Obama tweeted out to, to Joe Biden around the Inflation Reduction Act. And you're in the States. What's your take on, is this a BFD or not? What's your view? Yeah, I saw that tweet and I laughed out loud and saw Biden's reply, which just said, thanks, Obama, which was also um, brought a smile to my face. I thought that exchange between those two uh, kind of titans online was fun to watch. They're like frat brothers or something. A little bit of that going on. Remember our days in the White House together, um, but kind of look what we've done, because there is a continuation of what happened under one administration through the other, I think, too. I I think this is a huge deal. You know, we're talking about the Inflation Reduction Act. It's just passed in the U.S. It's not what it could have been. And I know a lot of people are still mourning that. So this is the successor to the Build Back Better plan, which had much bigger numbers attached to it and much more sweeping ambition. But let's not underestimate it. It is hundreds of billions of dollars that is mostly focused on climate and particularly kind of clean energy, clean electricity, cleaning up manufacturing. There are pieces of it that focus particularly on healthcare as well. But this is by far the most sweeping climate bill in U.S. history, devoting more than $300 billion to various things under that. And like I said, it covers this huge range of clean fuel and vehicles, clean energy incentives, air pollution aspects, forestry, transportation and infrastructure. So it's a bit all over the place. But what it does is it puts the U.S. on track to deliver a 40% reduction in carbon emissions by 2030 compared to 2005. That's one of the things people are wishing was better. Biden's ambition had been 50%. But it's important to remember, too, that there are some things that he can do through executive order. And people estimate that might be in the range of like 5%. So can you get that 40 to turn into 45? And then things are going to play out as a result of this, right? I hope we'll see more initiatives at city and state levels controlled by mayors and governors. I hope we'll see, of course, the private sector step up and do more because one of the things they always say when we ask them what's holding them back from more, better, faster climate action is clarity on policy. And here we have some. So who knows, maybe even that 50% by 2030 is put in range again by laying a foundation that helps guarantee or at least promises nothing's guaranteed. I know that we get 40%. And then curious to get your reaction to this from outside the country too, Chris, but maybe that's a good place for me to end is I think this isn't just a US story that obviously US climate leadership globally was hampered by not having meaningful action in place. Here it is. I think the US can go to COP27 in Egypt and elsewhere with its head held high and demand more of other nations. And because the US is such a huge market in economic terms, It's affecting demand and supply of technologies and electric vehicles and other things should reduce the cost of those things in other markets, too. So I think there's going to be spillover benefits. But what do you see looking in watching this? I I think that's I think that's right. I, I think it's it is the it sends such a powerful signal that this is where the future is and it's coming much more quickly than we thought. And it's, it drives competitiveness across the global economy, I think, in many ways. And, and my mild interpretation of the IRA is that it does facilitate this technological shift with existing technologies that we have, including electric vehicles, at the scale, which will change and unlock lots of behavior. Because I think a lot of this, both businesses and consumers and, and individuals have just been on the cusp of trying to 
jump into things. And this just makes the future that much closer at hand. So that's very powerful. I think it also raises the stakes in competitive contexts. And and I, I think with China and the US both committing increasingly to this, to some of these policies and shifts, that's all, you know, in some ways, that's all we need is a G2 to do it. Now, given the challenges with Taiwan, there those climate talks have stopped, but hopefully yeah. they're rekindled again in Egypt. And then the last thing I'll say, this together with the disclosure laws, both of the SEC and the EFRAG on climate specifically, I mean, it's a one-two punch that I think does it just in time to keep us down the road on the Paris Agreement. Yeah, at a time that it's hard, you know, again, just looking out at flooding and fire that are happening in different regions of the world and the constant reminders we have of how extreme the climate crisis is. This has been a remarkable few months for some progress from quarters where we've seen too little of it over time. So like you, I'm really excited about the new disclosure regulations that are on the books in a bunch of places, about the new standards that are emerging from bodies like the ISSB, uh, and now this IRA, you know, these are big, big steps forward. I'm much more optimistic heading into the fall COP and climate week kind of season than I would have been just weeks and certainly months ago. And it is a busy fall. So there's there's the UNGA week in September with the climate week in New York. So there's lots of activity already and energy that's happening around that. And I think this will be a buzz and, and a boost for sure because it's in it's in the US. COP27 in Egypt will is around the corner right after that. And negotiators, I'm sure it was time just in time to influence the broad negotiations that are happening, which will then be kind of wrapped up a little bit there in in Egypt. And then excitingly for a Canadian, the Convention on Biological Diversity COP process is COP15, which was meant to be in Kuning, China, I think in 2020, and then it kept getting delayed because of the pandemic, is now co-hosted by the Chinese and Canadian governments in Montreal in mid-December. And that's all about the nature agenda. And that's exciting, I think. And we've done a little bit of work at GlobeScan on the nature agenda. I think you're embarking on something. Why don't you talk about what the Sustainability Institute's doing on, on nature? Yeah, I'm just uh, reflecting for a moment on that fall schedule. I really like that arc and the fact that we kind of go through this cycle of climate and then end up on the nature meetings with the next iteration also of the TNFD due out in November. I hope and believe that we're starting to see these agendas and issues coming closer together. That's what's behind the research that we're embarking on. We're just starting now on a new piece of research in partnership with the Capitals Coalition. We're going to look at what companies need to do to prepare to disclose using the TNFD. We will, of course, use the TCFD as a bit of a model and a guide on that. And we'll specifically look to draw in some of the knowledge and learning of the Capitals Coalition and what role natural capital will play in meeting the challenges the TNFD kind of set before us. We'll hopefully release that. Our plan is to release it before Montreal and use that as part of our voice at that event. Chris, we've also talked about the point in time we're at in terms of between 2015 and 2030, we're sort of halfway. <laughs> and as the Paris Agreement, there is, are the SDGs that we've now had the emergence of nature agenda much more powerfully, I think, 20, since 2015. How does your nature research tie into all that? And what do you think of this midpoint that we're sitting the- on? The midpoint, so as we've always talked about before, is the glass half full or half empty, and it remains in that sort of realm there. I think there was a lot of pessimism about a month ago on where we're at, and but I think this Inflation Reduction Act in, in the U.S. is a big boost. And, and I think having the COP15 on nature in Montreal in December, I think you're right, it, it does bookend the year and allows for, I think, lots of progress to be made. I am excited about the nature agenda. I mean, in some ways it feels so obvious, right? Like why is the nature agenda a new thing in sustainable business? Because yeah. everything's nature. So it's it's kind of a little bit silly, but it's it is different in some capacity. So this this project we did earlier this year with 26 companies, and, and it was interesting. We do these shared research programs, and sometimes we expect 10 to participate and get involved, but there was an overwhelming interest because of I think the newness and and the opportunities related to it. And what was interesting in it, um, and there'll be a bunch of stuff we'll publish soon, but just in talking to those 26 companies from different sectors, different geographies, all of them are pretty new. Like there's a few toes in the water and very few. You can think of who we spoke to on, on the podcast, Cristiano from Susano, or deep into it, have been doing it for a while and mm-hmm. understand themselves as a natural capital company. Most other companies are like, this is something that's obvious, but we don't know our biodiversity footprint. We don't know what it means for indigenous people and how we act. We don't know, does it fit under climate? Is it separate? Is it different? How do we talk to our stakeholders? Investors and TNFD are starting to 
ask interesting questions. So it's a very fun, exciting, opportunistic time because there is no clarity on best practice and what good looks like in nature specifically. So, so that makes it interesting and dynamic and allows for the creativity. It'll get kind of contained and constrained a little bit as to what good looks like soon, but we're still at this open-ended, wow, we could do anything on nature or nothing. And so that was interesting. On the consumer piece of the work that we were doing in that program, what's amazing is how easily consumers, first of all, care about nature. It's quasi-spiritual or sacred for people across different cultures in the world. They get it. There's a huge amount of um, appreciation for it. It and it's not the complexity of climate change. It's in the future. It's like it's very here and now, and people are they value it. And I think the valuing of it is a good thing for business to be able to tap into to talk simply to people about what matters on when it comes to our footprint in the world. And that's universal. You find the same thing with consumers and citizens in all regions. In almost all regions, there's a, a very universal perspective that way. And, and also urban versus rural, no matter which country, that if you haven't experienced nature, you still really value it. So that's interesting. Yeah, that's hopeful. I appreciate that. I'm glad to hear. I look forward to delving more into the findings and take heart too in, in the corporate response that you had, that you had that big of a group who wanted to plunge into that relatively unknown research space. So Small green shoots, at least. Small green shoots. And, and in Montreal in December, but what's better? It's a little wrong time of year, but what a great city to, to have those conversations. For sure. So, so let, let's talk then to maybe end our, our conversation before we get to Frederica. There was a an important, seems like a seminal article on The Economist on ESG. And I forget the, the actual cover, but it was like, is ESG dead or is it wrong or is something about that what what was your your view on it i mean the, the economist has historically talked about sustainability and in the, the sustainability evolution every time they would talk about it maybe 10 years ago it would be usually disparaging and you know critical and then once in a while it kind of got over the hump like there's something there maybe but it's still flawed and and now this was a, a bigger piece that they did what was your take yeah well the economist is something i find kind of equally endearing and maddening partly because of its acerbic tone on these topics. And, and yet I, I really enjoy the analysis. And I don't think they're the only ones asking this question. You know, is ESG working is part of the question. Is ESG the right label is part of the question. We've talked about this over recent years as well. I think it's interesting how persistent sustainability has been, despite the other labels that have swirled around it. Maybe that's because it's got a longer, deeper, better defined foundation associated with sustainable development going back at least to the Brundtland Report in 1987. And, and ESG was the latest iteration to kind of float on top of that. And we'll see what next dominates the corporate and policy sustainability space. But specific to the Economist article and, and articles, really, there was a section devoted to this. Mm. They, I think, were partly arguing for focus and have an appreciation for that. So they said, look, for a whole bunch of reasons, we should think less, at least through this lens, about the S and the G, and we should focus in on the E for environment. And what if we just made that emissions? That climate is such an overwhelming challenge, and it's measurable, and business and government are both engaged in a pretty meaningful way. Let's go all in on emissions and use that as the key metric. Let everything else follow or be pursued in another channel. And I have at least some sympathy for that, although I think it's too simplistic because the fact that the social, human, equity, just transition aspects of the agenda are complex does not mean that we don't grapple with them, but they're not wrong in suggesting that the clarity of just measuring emissions matters. They also kind of came to this conclusion saying, look, even if it's imperfect, we need the private sector to continue to wrestle with questions like this. We're we're not getting enough yet from government. Hooray again, IRA, Inflation Reduction Act, and, and the other regulatory and policy moves we do see, but we need the private sector to continue to push. It's been trying through this ESG path. It's one of the ways that it can actually spur government and society to act. So please keep going. And that's how I read it. It doesn't really matter to me if the language of ESG persists over time. It matters to me if we see action and progress on what is, for many people right now, the ESG agenda, what for me persisting over time is the sustainability agenda. And we're just talking about better ways to measure progress and to demonstrate performance. 
What do you think? Same reactions on your side? No, I think that's right. And I think the other piece that they critiqued was just the measuring problem in ESG overall, which I think is true. You know, different ratings and and rankings haven't aligned very well, you know, where in traditional accounting, they're lined up very well. You know, S&P versus Moody's are pretty consistent where others in, in the in the ESG space don't. So we've got a, a measurement problem and probably because it's the methodologies and also the breadth that we're trying to measure and what's most important. I also think that given the, the outrageously large sums of money, so-called under ESG management, trillions of dollars now, and not much has changed, tells us that we're we haven't been hard or tough or clear enough on what is designated something that's, you know, a sustainable investment. But I think this is, you know, this is like growing pains and this, this wave of the last wave of sustainable development has been very mainstreaming the financial community, as you said, and the ESG. And that's good, but it wasn't good enough. And this is what we do. We evolve and take another swipe at it and it'll be stronger and better with hopefully not losing all that interest and engagement from you know the financial community and CFOs and companies. If we can maintain that investor lens, but just tighten it and make it stronger, we're in a really good place. And that hits for me on what has been most important about this ESG era we've been living in, is I think it's been very successful broadening the coalition of stakeholders who are engaged on sustainability issues. And more than anything else that preceded it, It's brought investors and CFOs and folks with that mindset to the table and made them part of the conversation. And I hope and trust that whatever label might come next, that those folks will continue to be included in that discourse and in the efforts and actions that are that are undertaken. Totally. And and I I have this analogy, and if we talk about before, but there's a floor and a ceiling on this on this subject. The floor has gotten much stronger and wider and moved up because of ESG, lots of players in. But we also need to keep moving the ceiling from a creative, innovative, ambitious perspective. And then we go from the second floor to the 50th floor over time. And I think we maybe have lost a little bit of effort on, on moving the ceiling, just a little less creativity and ambition in the last couple of years for maybe lots of reasons. But I, I think hopefully we can kind of keep that piece of the puzzle going. Well, I think there's such a strong relationship between the foundation or floor and the ceiling. And it, it's almost like this dynamic tension between them and that the higher we can raise the floor, the more freedom leaders have to stretch to the next level right, as well. Right. Maybe these last couple of years in that regard have represented a foundation building period yeah. where we've broadened that base. And now it's time to stretch again. Certainly looking ahead at the challenges that we face from a sustainability perspective, it's always time to stretch. But there are so many global ambitions that have artificially and meaningfully, I think, said 2030 is a critical point in time by which we need to have accomplished this much to to have the best chance of delivering a just and sustainable future for everyone by mid-century and beyond. And yeah, I believe that, subscribe to it. We need the floor to continue to move up and we need more action at that leadership level as well. And on that note, it's a perfect segue to our conversation with Frederica from Polestar, where she does talk about both the incremental hard work to get things going, as well as pushing the boundaries of the an entire industry in the world on sustainable mobility. So thank you, Mark. Good to see you. And um, over to our conversation with Frederica. Great. Thanks so much, Chris. Hi, everybody. I'm Chris Coulter and welcoming you to an exciting part of our All In Sustainable Business podcast, where we will be speaking with Frederica Klarin from Polestar. And, and Frederica is the head of sustainability at Polestar. Hi, Frederica. Hi there. So nice to meet you both. Yes. And, and the other part of both is Mark Lee. Hi, Mark. Hey, Chris. Excited to be here with both of you. Yeah, us too. And we're we're excited for many different reasons to have you, Frederica, not least because we don't know you. So this is exciting. We can kind of get to know each other, which is really good. Also, you're relatively new in your role at sustainability in a relatively new company. So there's a, a freshness to all of this interview that we're we're looking forward to. So maybe we begin by just like who are you? What you know, how did you get into sustainability? And then we can talk about Polestar in a little bit. Well, that's a huge question, of course. I'll, I'll try to uh, <laughs> to answer it to the best of my ability. But I am um, born and raised in Sweden uh, on a small island outside of Gothenburg, the, the second largest city in Sweden, uh, on a small carless or car-free island, actually. So it's quite ironic that I'm working in the, in the automotive business. Um, I was... Um, <laughs> 
yeah, I was brought up by and on the sea uh, in a very close-knit small community and um, felt very close to nature, of course, very dependent on nature, very impacted by nature, uh, and also uh, got a very solid sense of what community really means when you are uh, situated out in the sea on a very small island. How many uh, or how few people were on the island with you? I think it's the same number now that it was back then, like 1,500 people. Yeah, okay. Um, I'm just getting a sense. Still, yeah, my father still lives out there. And yeah, it's an amazing environment. And it really gave me the sense that we are dependent on each other. I really was able to understand the impact that we had. I saw it firsthand on nature and the sea. Uh, we had seal death uh, that I was very impacted by. So for some reason, this all led me to wanting to um, explore science. And I ended up in uh, the university here in, in Gothenburg, studied environmental systems analysis. And from then on, just went with the flow, uh, really, mm-hmm. and got to explore what my purpose was connected to what I was really interested in. And looking back at it, that has led me to this, working with sustainability. How did you choose business as the way to express this, um, you know, environmental focus and concern? Yeah, it could have been, it could have gone in another way, but it was really, I had an aha moment when I studied in uh, university, we had IKEA's head of sustainability coming Mm. in and giving us a lecture I studied environmental systems analysis and, you know, we were just overwhelmed by the amount of knowledge that we got from our professors, the urgent state around environmental issues. And and when you're in that bubble, you you can start, you know, to really distrust organizations and big companies. And Mm -hmm. but he was really able to come in and tell us in a very honest way about how they were handling all of these challenges. They they Mm -hmm. saw the challenges and they also acted on it i mean ikea i don't know if you if you've looked at their sustainability work but it's just so ingrained in in who they are and what they do so that really just gave me this aha sense of wow what the purpose-driven companies are able to do and how Mm. they can actually help us solve all of these challenges so i just grabbed a hold of him and said that i want to write my final thesis for you please (laughs) (laughs) and uh, and he said yes, luckily. So that led me to uh, to my first job at IKEA. And so I've worked with sustainability for, for more than 10 years, from the time at IKEA via a Swedish fashion company. And then now I'm at Polestar. You mentioned a couple of times along the way there, finding your purpose and being inspired by IKEA's purpose. Do you think that that word, you know, it's getting bandied about right now. Mm. Does it have a meaningful place in business? Absolutely. I, I yeah. don't think you can have business without purpose. Mm-hmm. I mean, if, if you go back to why we do business, it's really because we think that we can contribute with something that is purposeful and has an impact on people, right? Uh, so I think that actually businesses have gone astray from that drive that it really is all about in many cases. And, and that is what we are trying to build at Polestar. We are trying to build a purpose-driven company that will not lose sight of that. So, and that means, I mean, we often talk about the fact that we have set ourselves some challenging goals and we have, yes, we have started off with really high ambitions and very strict principles around sustainability. And it's going to be challenging for us to keep that in mind at all times and not to lose sight of that. It's not easy to stick with your ethics and your principles and your ambitions. And that's something you have to live every day as a company. So let's talk about the strategy in a second and the approach, but just for our listeners, who is, what is Polestar? So Polestar is this electric car company that has been around for a couple of years now. We're still very young. We don't say that we're a startup anymore. We're now more in the scale-up phase. We were founded by Volvo and Geely. So the Volvo Cars, the the Swedish car company, and Geely, the the Chinese automotive company. And they saw the need to really tap into the the great potential around sustainability and business when it comes to electric vehicles. And that they needed a front runner. Uh, mm. they, they needed someone who could spearhead this movement and really move very quickly. And that's basically us. We are driven by three core strengths that we try to develop, design, innovation and sustainability. 
And the beauty of working at Pulsar is that we don't want to compromise between those three. Mm. They are on the table in all decisions that we make. And we think that they are so interdependent as well. <laughs> we usually say that we um, we are in a scale of phase. And I think we currently employ like one person each day right now. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I started two years ago and the company looked completely different when it comes to uh, uh, market establishment and, and organization. We... We are a couple of thousand people globally now, and we are expanding. We are on several EU markets. We're on the US market, China, Australia, and expanding in a very rapid pace. And Canada, Canada, my car is coming, I think, in next week. In fact, I'm very excited. Polestar 2. Wow. Thank you for that. That's so nice to hear. And so nice to hear also that it's on the way. You're getting it. Although we have all of these uh, challenges with logistics. The, it was uh, delayed by a month or so, but then it was a surprise. Hey, it's it's here. It landed in Vancouver and it was on a train for a while. And now it's here. It's very interesting. It's like it's like someone coming home. <laughs> That's so good to hear. That's so good to hear. Yeah. That, so, that little yeah. vignette sort of touches so many things about the industry. That it's growing so fast and yet it's confronting so many supply chain and other challenges. And it's a funny industry for its mix of brand new companies that have been set up to be just EV and others that are attached to legacy companies. Can you just talk a little bit about how you're navigating this really complex landscape that is so important also to energy transition? No matter how you feel about cars, we need these vehicles. They have to be part of the solution. They do. They they are the solution that we have and that we need to rally behind. Uh, and, and we are one of the industries who actually have this powerful climate solutions. Not many industries can so clearly see that they have that in this very significant time and place that we find ourselves in. So for us, we know that we are so dependent on, even though, yes, we are 100% electric now uh, and, and we reap a lot of benefits from that, of course. But we also know that we are fully dependent on the industry as a whole. We are a small player when it comes to sourcing, when it comes to production capacity and so on. And we need to um, inspire a movement within the industry so that we can fulfill our goals. And that's why we are out there talking about the, the need for sustainability, for honesty, transparency, climate action, real climate action on an industry level. It's going too slow. We are not in an EV boom, first and foremost. Let's not fool ourselves thinking that we are in a global EV boom. We have an EV, an amazing EV transition on, on some markets. For example, in, in Norway and Sweden, we have we have a majority of EVs being sold now, which is wow. just yeah. amazing. But looking at the global perspective, which is kind of what the climate change is cares about is gives us a more bleak view we we only a few percent of the global car stock are evs Mm. we are still increasing road transport emissions at a time when when we need to absolutely start decreasing so that's why we're talking about this transition that we have to make and that we need to accelerate it we talk about the kind of goals that we set that that we also want the automotive industry to set them. For example, we've launched Pulsar Zero, a project to create climate neutral car by 2030 that I think we will get into, where we open up for collaboration and we, yeah, we are very outspoken because we want others to do the same. And what does a climate neutral car really mean? How's it different from an EV that you have rolling off the lines right now? So the EV that you've just purchased, Pulsar 2, which is the, the car that we have on the market now, it comes with a carbon footprint of about 24 to 26 tons of CO2, depending on what variant you chose. Uh, and we know this because we do life cycle assessments. We use life cycle assessments all throughout the product development process, of course, to make quick decisions. We do like quick and dirty LCAs, we call it, to inform our engineering and design choices. But we also make a big one in the end so that we can declare a carbon footprint for the car. And in that LCA, we take into account the material emissions. We, you shouldn't exclude any. So these are the emissions stemming from the raw material extraction down to the end of life for the vehicle. Throughout. That includes everything from, the, from what goes into the battery to the steel to the upholstery in the car. Totally. Yeah. So um, the use phase, we do scenarios for that as well. And what we saw when we did the LCA for Polestar 2 is that electric vehicles already today 
have a lower carbon footprint than the comparable fossil fuel car, regardless of how you charge it, really, you get a smaller impact. You can even have the impact. Mm. So Chris, if you would have gone with a XC40 fossil Volvo car, you would have had a certain amount of emissions that would be emitted from that choice over the car's life cycle. And now by choosing a Polestar 2 instead, which is built on the same platform, like Mm. XC40 Mm -hmm. and, and really comparable, you will have those emissions just make sure to to charge it with renewable energy but i'm guessing that you're going to do that right well and luckily i live in ontario which has a very you know clean electric grid so that, that's interesting and, and that's the complicated thing for for consumers because sometimes you could buy an ev but where you live is fired by coal-powered plants i mean are, are yeah. you are you trying to educate or engage consumers on that whole chain of how this stuff actually works in a sustainable way we do, absolutely. And that has been one of our key messages coming out from the, the whole LCA launch, that one, please, let's stop talking about whether or not EVs are better than fossil fuel cars. We can leave that discussion right. behind us. Just so they are. Yeah. That they are yes. And yeah. two, please charge with renewable energy, because that means that we will have the emissions. And that is the type of reduction we need. Mm. We need to see in 2022, right? We cannot go for any less than that. So we've tried to really engage with consumers around this topic in, you know, films and and through the web page and, and in all channels that we can. And um, your story, if I can, sorry, underscores, I think, how close all of a sudden 2030 looms, right? We, yes. There are many 2030 goals out there. And you want a net zero Polestar uh, or next model, if the name changes, by 2030. And you've got 24 or 26 tons to work through. Yeah. And I'm guessing you've got a great plan for 12 or 15 tons and maybe no plan for 10 tons. <laughs> what looks yeah. stickiest and hardest to work through? Yeah, so the Polestar Zero project that is going to deliver this climate neutral car is now led by our former head of R&D, uh, Hans Passion. And we are running it like uh, an R&D project. So we have a designated task force who are now starting up. It's going to be three phases. So the first phase is going to be all about research. We know where the emissions are stemming from through through our LCA. And, And we know that for some of the emission sources, there are solutions in place that we can probably use for post zero in 2030. Most of, of uh, the materials and functions in the car, we're not even close to getting a climate neutral solution. So they are setting up research around this together with collaborators. We've signed on five very important industry suppliers. Uh, so we have Swedish steelmaker SSAB uh, joining us in the project. We have Norwegian aluminium producer Hydro, we have ZF, who, who does safety components. We have ZKW, who, who works in the electric field. And then we also have, gosh, now I'm uh, completely blank after my summer vacation. Did That's I good. Hold on to that blankness. That's important until September. I, I mixed two of them up. I was Autolib is the one who does the safety. And ZF also is uh, in electronics. So that's why I mixed it up. And uh and we've put out call to actions to find more uh, research collaborations. So you will see more collaborations popping up. After the research phase, we will architecture phase, doing all mm. of the choices for mm. the platform, electric driveline, all of the architectural choices. And then in the end, it's going to be your normal product development phase. We're trying to divide these eight very urgently impactful years into phases that will drive us forward in this project. And leveraging the engineering mindset that's inherent in in a car company, I guess. Yes, yes, that's where the magic happens. Those are the kind of people that we we need to uh, put to work now. You've mentioned so far the the need for more and better collaboration at the industry level, that the EV and automotive industry overall, it sounds like you think needs to come together. And then the critical importance that collaboration is going to play in delivering Polestar Zero. Comparing to your time in other industry and looking at where you are now, is collaboration playing a unique role? Is it different in the automotive industry? Is it better or harder? What makes it work? I was 
quite astounded to see when I came to the automotive industry, how little companies collaborated with mm-hmm. each other. Mm-hmm. I was so used to my years in fashion collaborating with industry peers on all of the challenging sustainability issues uh, because we saw that there was no issue where we didn't need to collaborate. So, so for example, when I worked at the Swedish fashion company, I had like weekly contact with H&M and other industry peers. We collaborated around living wages, climate, circularity, textile, collecting, you name it. But coming to the automotive industry, I've realized that it's been so heavily regulated when it comes to, of course, anti-competitiveness. And and so much has happened over the years. So there is a logic and reasoning behind why they are a bit reluctant to to collaborate. So what we want to do is really to, to enable and inspire the automotive industry to think anew about this. And and we do that by being very outspoken yet again, very transparent about what we do. So, for example, publishing our life cycle assessment and the full methodology and data sets behind that is a way for us to really hopefully make other automotive uh, industry players to feel safe to do the same and also to trust us as a as a collaborator. And yeah, we, we need it and, and we don't need a collaboration I both love and hate talking about it because <laughs> it, it is a double-edged sword, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is. And often you say, though, we collaborate because we have a shared vision. And often that vision is so watered out in the end. So it becomes like nothing. And what we want to do is that we really want, just want to go down to the basics and set: can we set the same targets? Can we, can we use the same tools? Can we focus on the same research? Can we put all of our resources into the same buckets now? That to us is the collaboration that is needed because it's action that we want to inspire. As a a scaling up smaller player, probably a non-threatening player at this stage to the, you know, the, the traditional OEMs, maybe, maybe not. You said you I think the intention is to be disruptive and very purpose-driven and value-driven. And your CEO has been quite vocal on some things around transparency, but also, you know, by 2030, we've got to have stricter regulations around fossil fuel using cars going forward and, and the COP mm. process has to speed up and things like that. How do you see advocacy as a piece of what you do in your role, but also, I guess, the company and the role of advocacy and driving it forward? And then do you almost see yourself as like a fashion analogy, the Patagonia of the auto industry going forward? Well, advocacy to me is really to be on the front line of making change happen. To make change happen, we need to talk about it. I had a really funny moment the other day when when we were having dinner with some friends of ours and their kid <laughs> uh, like just turned to me and said that, well, my mom and dad says that you talk a lot about the environment. Uh, that's basically what you do. You just talk and talk and talk and talk about the environment. Uh, really and they were fun kind of dinner guest. Everybody was excited, right? <laughs> yes, yeah. his parents were like, "Oh, oh And I said, "Yeah, that that we need to do that. We need to we need to uh, advocate. We need to not get tired of spreading the message and really hammering the message in to really get to a point where we say we take action and and we change." So a lot of my work, and, and I guess you're really familiar with this as well, is that you, you, have, to, you have to be able to balance talking and, you know, walking and mm-hmm. talking and doing. And, and that's also why, what I love about my job and what, what makes it so dynamic. And, and for Polestar, that is a capability that we are honing. And I'm so inspired by my communication colleagues in the way that they are able to really make our communication very purposeful and impactful and that we actually dare to say some things that you might not do as a a small and young player on the market. But we do it because we're so convinced that this is a strength that we have, you know, coming back to the three strengths, design, innovation and sustainability. That there we shouldn't hold back. And can you give us an example of one of the messages you're really proud of, maybe that seemed a little bit cheeky for that upstart young company? Well, the, the call to action on life cycle assessment was kind of 
the first thing that we did uh, when we published uh, the life cycle assessment and, and started to market Polestar 2. So it was very early on. And putting a call to action out to players like Volkswagen and Toyota and GM and, and others to use our LCA methodology <laughs> it was a bit cheeky maybe, but it was very well intended and it was well received as well. Mm, uh, we've only gotten good feedback from it. And, and then, of course, our Super Bowl campaign, I don't know if you saw it, a very short film with impactful messages, which really is, well, it just summarizes the tone and the energy of this company in a very good way. I think no bullshit was in there. No mm-hmm. greenwashing, yeah. no compromises. It captured everything we're trying to stand mm-hmm. for. Terrific. We touched lightly on the role of government in in referencing how heavily regulated the automotive industry is. This is a moment when people are celebrating some of the regulation that's emerging around climate as well. Mm -hmm. And, And not because it's been leading for a long time, but at the point that we're talking to you, the U.S. has finally taken a step with the Inflation Reduction Act, Mm -hmm. which has just come through. And um, in addition to its breadth on climate, there are specific elements of it that will support EVs by helping consumers access them in terms of affordability. Mm -hmm. But whether you pick up anything there or just a bit more broadly, what do you need as an industry from government to make this happen at the pace that we all need the transformation of the automotive industry to occur? I am more and more inclined to say that we shouldn't need anything. And that's the discussion that we really need to have in the automotive industry. Whenever I go to conferences where I listen to industry peers or or COP26, for example, and, and we talk about why are we still increasing emissions? Why are we not doing what we need to do? I hear most of the automotive leaders uh, pointing to policymakers not acting and being uh, confusing and not deciding and so on. They keep blaming policymakers for not taking action. When on the other hand, it's the other way around for me. We should send the signal that makes policymakers, consumers and others comfortable in taking these bold decisions. We are the ones who need to be uh, on top of this and lead the change. Because we, as a business, can move quickly. And um, it's much more complex to do that as a consumer or, and, or a government. So that is really what we are trying to point to. But then looking at the regulation that is coming up, Mark, I, I so agree with you. I, I, I am so happy about the decisions that are being made around the world in different countries to really take firmer action on, on different sustainability issues. For example, the Inflation Reduction Act, it pinpoints something that I think is one of the key actions to take, and that is traceability and increased transparency in supply chains. Mm. You need to know where your minerals are coming from uh, to be able to say that you have done something on sustainability and that you can offer a more sustainable product. And traceability will be key for that. Uh, and traceability is one of our initiative within our focus area transparency. It's something that we are working very hard on. We got to pilot blockchain to trace cobalt uh, when we developed Polestar 2. And uh, based on the success of that project, we are now adding on more risk minerals in the blockchain traceability, but also setting up other chain of custody methods for other risk materials and minerals. And this is the platform on where you can then add on Data transparency, efficiency, trusting the supply chain, checking up on the supply chain, it all it all builds on traceability, really. And that is one of the places where I guess there has been concern or questions among stakeholders and consumers on the green transition or the sustainability mobility journey from the battery piece and, and the minerals, and they are in contested areas and conflict zones in some cases. Mm. Is traceability sufficient? Or are we, and especially if we think of the scale that we need for, mm. for battery-powered vehicles, I guess the mining industry needs to be very on board and, and quite in lockstep as part yeah. of the supply chain. Yeah, especially the mining industry. They are one of the most corrupted, if not the most corrupted industries in the world. And they have a resource use, you know, pollution, human rights issues that are very, very serious and severe throughout their supply chain. So they 
really need to get traceability uh, into the way they work. And, um, you know, traceability has kind of been the holy grail for me working with sustainability. And especially in the fashion industry, we knew that we had to create that to be able to label, for example, a T-shirt that the, the cotton was organic. You need traceability to be able to make that claim. But traceability has been so hard working with. Yeah. You know, it's been democratic, easily corrupted. It's been costly. Enter blockchain. And, you know, we have this immutable way of creating traceability that is efficient and digital, you know, modern, innovative. What we're seeing now when we scope out of, of our operations is an industry that is so reluctant to adopt this solution, even mm. if it's so promising. We really have to be out there and, and once again, advocate for this, teaching suppliers teaching other OEMs, teaching other industry uh, actors about why traceability matters, why we should give away data, why we should feel secure doing that. And that in the end, it's going to save you money uh, if you implement this solution. We talk about Postal Zero being complex, but we at the sustainability team at Postal, we say that the traceability project is nearly as complex as Postal Zero, <laughs> I have to say. Yeah, and for all the decades of work that have gone on there in fashion and otherwise, we're still learning hard lessons, right? I remember the stories from last year about the amount of organic cotton that's actually believed to be growing versus the mm. amount of organic cotton that is now labeled in the world. And the two things don't line up. And that they goes with a system where traceability is built on promises instead of, as I liked, as you said, the, the immutable power of blockchain. That, yeah. that we need something that we can guarantee and your industry mm. will obviously benefit enormously from that. Yeah. Just now with the latest example of how useful it is with the war in Russia, you can go into the blockchain platform and immediately see real-time data of where you're getting minerals from. And, and you can see, it. is it stemming from this, well, in this case, this warmongering country? or for any other reasons that you you might want to see that. So it's going to be beneficial not only to the sustainability performance or, or having a control system, but also to financing, quality, efficiency, you name it. And human rights and all the other social yeah. aspects that are so yeah. fundamental to proper development. So what kind of, um, in the next year or two, what, what kind of challenges or opportunities are you most excited about, Frederica? What do you... What do you what are you going to spend time on, you know, working on, do you think, well, in addition we, to everything else? We yeah. talked about? <laughs> well, of course, uh, growing our organization, enabling all of the amazing coworkers coming in, wanting to do things in a different sustainable way, enabling them to do that mm -hmm. is a key focus for, for my team, of course. But then also really establishing now our long-term roadmaps, going ahead on, on climate, circularity, transparency and inclusion. And also one thing that I really want to see is that we continue decreasing our climate emissions. If we're going to talk about something specific, that is a key focus for us the coming years. We were able to decrease our relative emissions, even though so even though we were growing in such an amazing way from last year, we were able to decouple that growth when it came to climate. So we decreased our relative emissions by 7%. And we're going to have to continue working on that and, and reminding ourselves of that um, mission. You know, often we talk about when it comes to sustainability, you know, the long term systemic changes that we want to make happen. And of course, we at Poster, we want circular mobility, we want inclusive mobility and all of that. But I'm getting more and more tired of, um, of only talking about that when we get to these arenas and forums. We have to talk about the boring stuff as well. We have to see incremental boring incitation marks steps because we have to bend the curve now. So mm. what can we do to make that happen? I, I felt like we've talked too much about business model systemic changes to the point where we have forgotten that we have to hold each other accountable to making changes in 2022, 2023, 2024 that decreases the climate emissions. So, yeah, long, long answer. That's that's the but focus. Th that is the discipline and that is the culture that's required, which is what I think you say is, is um, not as sexy or as exciting as the transformative yeah. conversations. But that is where the real work gets done. So that, I think that's a, that's a proper focus. Yeah.
good. Good that you think so. <laughs> so let's go back to the beginning. So you're in school. You're a, a bright-eyed student, very excited about sustainability, coming from a small fishing village on an island outside of Gothenburg. And is it Steve Howard who comes in and speaks to you? No, it was Steve's predecessor. Uh, ah. Thomas, when I worked at, at IKEA, Steve Howard came in and just established the people and plan a positive strategy in an amazing way. So I got to be a part of that. That was so, yeah, so nice. Yeah, and, and I bring that up because I do, I do think in our world and probably other disciplines too, that mm-hmm. the individual, the power of the individual to switch someone on, I think is really, really important. And, and it's not just the systemic stuff, but it's those sometimes random interventions or engagements that do change our lives forever. So that's interesting. Yeah, did it in a way that was so Ikea also. I mean, he... <laughs> did you have to buy a light bulb? <laughs> yes. Like to the cafeteria? So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he did. And, you know, well, he wore the... Uh, at that point we had the blue and yellow uh, uniform and everything he was able to I I so get what you're getting at Chris to Mm. be this spark you know Uh, and often if you come in and you're this he he came from an NGO into this company if you can be this visionary but but also very very action-oriented leader and couple that together with the culture that you're meeting you know, that's where it's going to happen. And that is what I think happened at IKEA at that point. Exciting. Well, thank you very much, Frederica. We we're, we're so grateful for the time and, and we wish you all the luck in the world to keep that ongoing discipline of each year, but also to transform the industry, which as, we, as we've been talking about is so fundamental to mm. the future. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Really nice talking to you both. No, really nice hearing the story and look forward to watching stories of Polestar's transformation, but also how you'll infect others uh, across the industry and through the supply chain to help meet these big goals. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the All In Podcast. If so, don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss any future episodes. And why not also give us a five-star review on iTunes? It helps others to find us, which helps spread the message.